So welcome to the second lesson of Warrior the Warrior. And we're going to just quickly refresh our memories. Last week we outlined the objective of the course, as well as the steps that we're going to take to try to at least get to that objective. Our objective was to live a life that's filled with positive emotions and devoid of negative emotions. The means of attaining that objective, as we discussed last week, that we need the fuel to be able to have a positive emotion, was to live a life from a paradigm of selfless, purposeful, God-oriented self. Last week we discussed about the difference of the two souls, the divine soul and the natural soul. And when we align ourselves with the divine soul, and we then have purpose, selflessness, God-oriented, things automatically align differently. Today we're going to examine another two forms of negative emotions. And today's negative emotions we're going to talk about the first one, a particularly toxic and incredible debilitating and devastating emotion, which is shame. Now when we talk about shame, as you can see, we have it up here. Today we're going to talk about embracing flaws, addressing shame, frustration, and feeling of inadequacy. What is shame? Now, every single word, many people have different ways how to translate it. They say a story, once this lawyer was uh, on his way home, and he was cruising through a stop sign, and the policeman pulls him over, and he says, listen here, fella, you didn't stop through a stop sign. And the lawyer says, I technically did stop because I did slow down. Maybe I didn't come to a complete stop, but it was almost like a stop, and I'm going to fight the stick. And the policeman says, I'm sorry, sir. You didn't come to a complete stop. You're going to get a ticket. And of course, again, the lawyer starts saying, no, what are you talking about? I'm going to fight you. I'm going to take your badge number. And says, I came to an almost complete stop. And then just going on and on and on and on. It was a controlled, um, I came slowing down in a controlled manner, which is technically a stop, and so on. Suddenly, the policeman takes the fellow and starts beating the loving daylights out of him. So the lawyer starts screaming and he says, stop, stop, stop. So the lawyer, so the policeman asked him, do you want a controlled slowdown or do you want to stop? (laughs) There's the difference. So when we talk about words, yes, words we throw around and what definitions are. And in order to define a remedy to a certain illness, we need to first define the illness in order to be able to find the remedies for it. So to properly define, first we need to properly define what shame is, and only then can we find a remedy to shame. The problem and why it's so difficult to find a remedy or to define what shame is, because shame many times is completely confused with a very related type of emotion, which is called guilt. And as we're going to get to it a little bit soon, we're going to talk about the difference between guilt and shame. And next week we're actually going to talk about guilt, as we'll get to in a moment. So what's the difference between guilt and shame? Let's see text number one, which is on page 46. Page 46, text number one. The emotion of guilt is a negative feeling that people can experience for a wrongdoing, such as being untruthful or deceptive to others. Guilt is often confused with shame. People may refer to these emotions incorrectly or interchangeably. 
However, much evidence suggests that they are distinct. Similar to guilt, shame is an unpleasant experience and is categorized by feeling worthless, exposed, and small. There are not reliable distinctions between the types of situations that can separately evoke guilt or shame. And it is possible to feel a certain level of both, emotion after a misdeed or a failure. But what's the difference? Guilt and shame can be distinguished by the negative evaluation that individuals make after lying or following some harmful action. Negatively judging the self by focusing on what I did wrong can elicit shame. Whereas negatively, doing, uh, negatively judging the wrongful behavior by focusing what I did wrong can evoke guilt. Thus is perhaps the easier to understand why guilt may feel less painful than shame because guilt stems from a greater focus on the temporary act as terrible rather than a global evaluation of the self as a terrible person. In simple words, we feel guilty for what we have done and we feel shameful for who we are. Just to give a few examples, a few examples you can find in figure 2.1 on page 47. Shame would mean I can't believe I binged what a weak idiot I am. Guilt would be I binged again. This is harmful to my well-being. Shame would be I'm such a bad parent I can't control my kids. Guilt would be I'm having guilt difficulty controlling my kids and need to do a better job. Shame would be I should really visit my mom more often. I'm a really bad daughter. Guilt would be I have not been visiting my mother as often as I should. That's not okay. She deserves better. Shame would be I promise not to get angry anymore, but I did. Some, I, but I did. I must be crazy. I, guilt would be I promise not to get angry anymore, but I did feel terrible. I feel terrible about the damage that my outbursts are causing. And one more example. Shame would be there's no excuse for coming home drunk again. I'm just a rotten person. Guilt would be I feel awful. Once again, I came home drunk. The behavior is unacceptable. So as you can see from all these examples, shame identifies the individual. The individual feels like he did something wrong, while guilt would say that the behavior that the person did wrong was something that they regret, and therefore they're upset about. So what we have over here is, when we talk about guilt and shame, they're very much related. And they're both in a negative emotion. (coughs) But shame is a far more painful emotion. And the reason why shame is a more painful emotion is because the individual is the one that's ashamed. Not because of the action that they've done, but they look at themselves as a downtrodden or a terrible person for what they have done. And we're going to get to it a little further. In In 2013, an interesting study was conducted on college campuses which underscore the difference and the reaction, the reactionary difference to if you call something guilt and if you call something shame. So here, follow, watch this. Here's our question. 
When young George was confronted by his irate father, did he experience guilt or did he suffer shame? The true answer is neither. The story was fabricated, but the distinction would have largely depended on George's perspective. Let's digress a moment to explain. In 2013, a group of psychologists conducted an experiment on college campuses. Students were asked to play a simple game with a chance to win $5. They were handed simple instruction sheets. Unbeknown to the students, not all the sheets were identical. They contained an almost undetectable distinction in language. But as it turned out, that subtle distinction played an enormous role in determining the students' subsequent behavior and moral decision-making. Some of the sheets insisted that the experimenters were interested in determining how common cheating is. Other sheets stated that they were interested in determining how common cheaters are. The difference seems negligible. Cheating versus cheaters. But there is a distinction. Cheating is a verb and refers to unethical activities. Cheaters is a noun and refers to unethical individuals. The students were instructed to think of a number between 1 and 10. Once they had mentally selected a number, they were told that if the number they had selected was an even number, they would receive $5. If it was odd, they'd receive nothing. The students then reported their numbers. Incredibly, only 20% of the students who had read instruction sheets with the noun cheater reported that they thought of an even number and collected payment. 20%! Considering that the vast majority of people tend to pick odd numbers for some odd reason, this means that all, or almost all, of the students were as honest as Washington. By contrast, a full 50% of students who read instruction sheets with the verb cheating claimed to have thought of an even number and collected their money. Apparently, a lot of them were not telling the truth. What happened? It is all a matter of perspective. Those who thought the experiment was about the act of cheating, unethical behavior, had less of an issue with lying to line their pockets. But those who thought the experiment was to discover the prevalence of cheaters, unethical people, preferred to forego the chance to gain some quick cash in order to avoid the internal shame of identifying themselves as immoral. In conclusion, guilt is far less hurtful and far more tolerable than shame. Back to Washington. Had he reflected on his devastating act, he would have felt rather guilty. However, if he had focused on his newfound lowliness as a cherry tree attacker and the destroyer of property, he would have experienced shame, a far more painful and damaging reaction. I think this study, besides telling us the difference between guilt and shame, evokes also a different uh, purpose and as well, is the importance of words. One word, just the way it's said, can trigger a completely different emotion. So when they said cheating, when you talk about an you can make it sound like abstract. Okay, there's cheating, okay, we'll get over it, you know. It's not me, they won't catch me or something. All of a sudden when it's cheaters and you personify it, 
you automatically change the equation, as you can see. It was from 50% to 20% the difference, and there was only one word difference. But what is also we see astonishing here is that when it comes to guilt, people get over guilt eventually. You feel guilty the first time, you feel guilty the second time. But then what happens? Okay, you get used to it. As in the words of the, as we're going to read about, learn about next week, Nasali Kaheter becomes, you know, becomes permissible. You stop feeling every time the guilt is less. Shame is an identity. And that is very hard to break. And not only is it hard to break, but it's debilitating. When you're embarrassed of something, when you feel shame within yourself, you don't want to go out in public, you don't want to talk to people, you carry this weight on your shoulder. And in most cases, it comes from a negative, um, it not only causes a negative emotion, but it's a personal sense of inan- inadequacy. And not always is it because you did something wrong. Take, for example, a person who doesn't feel like they're a good parent. It doesn't mean they can be taking care of their kids, but great. Their kids can be the happiest children. But they all of a sudden think to themselves, well, but I work 9 to 7, I only put them to bed, I only see them on Sundays, and they feel this, not guilt, shame within themselves that I am not doing my best to be a good parent, even though they could be a wonderful parent. So not always, and this is the difference between shame and guilt, guilt comes from a negative behavior, which causes you to think that you did something wrong, or you feel guilty that you did that wrong behavior. A person can be sh- have shame and actually not do anything wrong, and it is only because they feel inadequate that they're not doing the proper job or the best they should. And therefore, they have that shame, that inner shame within themselves. And, they're fa- and either it can be because they, they see somebody else is doing a better job, and therefore they say they're embarrassed to say, or they have that shame and say, oh, I, how come I'm not like them? Look at this parent who's stopped going to work and they're taking care of their children 24-7 or whatever it may be. Or look at this person that's in the job that's doing a wonderful thing, but look at me. Um, and you have that shame within yourself. However, the root of the character flaws is the same. It's an unhealthy behavior. It's a morally deficient behavior. And the mix of shame and guilt about who they are and what they've done becomes very debilitating and very negative and toxic for the individual. Today we're only going to be talking and addressing shame, not guilt, as we mentioned. Guilt, we'll talk about next week's lesson. And the reason why it's very important and the reason why it's separated into two lessons is because shame and guilt are completely two different things. And they're two different types of illnesses and more importantly, two types of remedies. And the reason, just a little, uh, just suffice it to say, one of the basic reasons is because when it comes to shame and guilt, when it comes to shame, Shame is something. <coughs> I walked into the word shame. That's it. <laughs> okay. So the seats up front. You don't have to sit so far back. You can't see huh? And your soup. Please make sure. One of the reasons why we have shame, with the difference between shame and guilt. Number one, there are sometimes that guilt is a good thing, as we're going to talk about next week. And sometimes guilt is a positive reaction to what we have done to be able to correct it. However, shame, there is never a good time for shame. And that's why as we're going to go and talk about it today. So a person who has zero willpower or discipline, or is a hopeless nasher, 
may feel guilty every single time that he gnashes or breaks his diet or does something wrong, but that's not correcting the issue about the shame that he thinks about himself that I am hopeless. And that's the difference between the two. And that's why next week we'll talk about guilt and this week we'll talk about shame. The second negative emotion that we're going to discuss today is frustration. And why are we going to talk about frustration? Just I am ashamed of who I am. I can't seem to do anything about it. The second negative emotion is frustration. I am ashamed of who I am. And because I am ashamed of who I am, I can't seem to get it out of the predicament. What do I do about it right now? And because of these character flaws that I have, all of a sudden I'm stuck. I'm frustrated. Where do I go from here? And these same, the same character flaw, so to speak, that gives me the shame, automatically brings me to a level of frustration, and that frustrates me. They say about this guy calls up the librarian in the middle of the night, and, she, and he asks the librarian, what time does the library open? It's 9 o'clock. She says, but why are you calling 5 o'clock in the morning to find out what, that, what time the library is open? She says, you know, you can't get into the library anyway before 9 a.m. She says, yeah, I know, but I want to get out. <laughs> <laughs> so this leads us now to our next question. And as we learned last week, we know that shame is a problem. We know that shame brings me to frustration, puts me in a gridlock. How do I get out of it? And the question that we're going to address today is, how do I maintain a positive emotion when feeling inadequate? Because I have that shame. And number two is when I'm frustrated by this constant struggle of feeling inadequate, how do I still maintain a positive emotion? Meaning that because I have this shame, I now I feel inadequate. The inadequacy causes me frustration that I'm not able to be positive and think good about myself and think good about what I'm doing. So how do I maintain this positive emotion with this frustration and shame that I have? And some of you may think, well, I'm a happy guy, I'm a happy-go-lucky, I'm not embarrassed of anybody, I say what I think, I don't have that shame. But keep in mind that in many of these issues, yes, we may not have them right front and center of us, but they could be simmering beneath us. There's a certain type of shame that you do feel in or inadequate about something, and maybe beneath the surface it's there, and all of a sudden one day pops out at you like a vengeance. Or many times we don't even realize that we have the shame and we only see the frustration part of it. And why are we so frustrated? And we can't figure out why we're so frustrated. And many times that frustration comes from because we, have, we lack that self or positive self-esteem, if you want to call it. Or we have that shame that doesn't allow us to move beyond the frustration. And so we learned last week, to be able to move beyond negative emotions, we need to have energy gas, fuel, to have positive emotions, to fight the fight. And the negative emotion that even though it may be simmering quietly underneath the surface, is sapping from us all our energy and not allowing us to move beyond ourselves and therefore the frustration is causing us to go. So what we have over here is a struggle, a character struggle. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is the point of this character struggle? Why should I fight? Why do I have this character struggle? Why can we just move on? So anybody? 
Why do, what's the point of the character struggle? Why do we have the struggles? Okay, that's one common answer. Many people will say you have the struggles, so you should be able to reach your full potential. But as we will see today, and we will see that there's a purpose, not only in what will be the outcome of the struggle, but also in the struggle itself. And that's what we're going to look today and we're going to talk about. So last week we explained, and we mentioned, we gave a little bit of an introduction that this entire course is based on six chapters of the Tanya. <coughs> Excuse me. Based on six chapters of the Tanya. And last week we introduced one of the fundamental principles in Tanya, which is a concept of the two souls, the divine soul and the natural soul. The divine soul is what gives us the positive emotion, the natural soul is what is the self-sustaining self-interest, which is the negative emotion. And today we're going to explore a new fundamental concept which is mentioned in Tanya, which is, and is in chapter one of Tanya, is that in general, there are two types of people. We're going to call it the type one people and the type two people. The type one people is what we would call a tzaddik. A person who is ultimately righteous, doesn't struggle at all with their impulses, instincts, temptations, character lives, they're just perfect. You know the story about a matchmaker. This matchmaker calls over a young man, he says, boy, do I got a girl for you. I have a girl. The boy says, I'm not interested, I'm still studying, and I have still time, I'm not, I want to get married yet. So he says, listen here, but she's beautiful. And he says, no, okay, I'm starting to listen. <laughs> she says, she's wealthy. He says, oh, sounds really good. He says, sounds great. He says, oh, she also has great ancestry. She comes from a very important family. She says, wow, that's very interesting. So the yeshiva boy looks at the shatch and the matchmaker and says, she must be crazy if she wants to go for a boy like me. The matchmaker turns to the boy and says, well, you can't get it all. <laughs> but this tzaddik, this fellow, this tzaddik, this fellow has, doesn't have any struggles. He doesn't have any impulses. He doesn't have any instincts, temptations, character flaws. He's pure. He's holy. He's devoid of any ego, self-centeredness. In the words of the Tanya, these people are called tzaddikim, righteous people. Now, I know classically when we talk about a tzaddik, a tzaddik is a behavior type of person, a person who behaves in certain ways. But according to the Tanya, a tzaddik is not only a behavior type of person, but it also an emotional, clear person that does not have any struggles, has overcome all the struggles. In fact, such type of people are a very rare breed. To the extent that you can see in text number two, the Talmud tells us, God saw that the righteous are few in number, so he planted them in every generation as it is written, the tzaddik is the foundation of the world. There are many people who are a tzaddik in behaviors throughout the generations. But that's not what the Talmud is talking about according to the Tanya. According to the Tanya, the Talmud is talking about this genere of people who are in effect are perfect. Perfect is rare. God made sure not to bunch them together in one generation so every generation can have at least one individual who is perfect to ensure that they continue this special breed of individuals. 
And at every time and in every age, there's at least one tzaddik alive. And the Talmud refers to, if you look at the words, a tzaddik in singular term, that means that they're a very rare type of breed. Now, to be sure about this type of individual, this individual has a soul like me and you. But he has a special gift. That his soul has the ability, his divine soul has the ability to conquer his natural soul completely. His soul has the ability to win the struggle and therefore making their life sweet, holy, selfless, uncomplicated. They have conquered their self-consciousness, their sublime, their, their natural being, their natural soul, completely, that there's nothing left of it. It has no power whatsoever. And they are completely selfless, purposeful, God-oriented self. Very unique character. At least I'm not one of them. Newsflash. <laughs> then the, there's type in this two day people. And age, who is a Sadiq then? That's, we wouldn't know. It's selfless. Now, so let's talk about type two type of people. Called strugglers. Majority of people today are called strugglers. Now, the majority of people are called this type two type of people. Why? Because we spend our life struggling. We spend our life trying to overcome our temptations, our instincts, our demands, whatever it may be. Our natural soul continues to give us a hard time. We are, if you want to call it, the 99%. Take it a step further. The type 2 type of people have not yet got to the level where they've absolutely overcome their divine soul. And in fact... They will never arrive there. They will always struggle. The type 2 people who successfully navigate and despite their internal oppositions continue to struggle and in the Tanya's words they are called Bainanim, the mediocres. Why we call the mediocres? Because we are constantly struggling. We always have an enduring fight. And there's one more step to it. Every single one of us here in this room can be a struggler. Every single one of us can reach the level of a Bainani. We all can be type twos. The, not all of us can be a Sadiq, because if we weren't gifted with that ability to overcome the natural soul. Now again, yes, the Sadiq needs to work to be able to overcome the natural soul, but he has the gift and he has the ability to do it. 99% of us were not even given that gift to be able to overcome it. It is an eternal struggle. Let's see text number three. In the words of the first Chabad Rebbe at the time, on page 49. The status of the Bainani is attainable for all people. Achieving the status ought to be a very personal goal. At any time, any person can be a Bainani because the Bainani does not have an aversion of the whole and holy. To have an aversion of the unholy is not practical for all people because that is a feeling that we cannot necessarily control. <clears throat> and not at all times are alike. The Bainini's task is only to turn away from evil and do good. In actual practice, indeed, speech and thought. In these areas, the choice, ability, and freedom are given to every person to act, speak, and think in the way that are contrary to the desire of the heart, even diametrically opposed to it. To change one's feelings, on the other hand, namely... To truly detest the unholy 
Absolutely. Or even less than that, this is only possible one has a great intense love for God, the kind of ecstatic love, that divine bliss that is similar to the pleasure experienced in the world to come. Of this experience, the sages said, you will experience your world in the world of lifetime, but not every person merits this. So last week we discussed about the two souls, the two selves, the two identities, the divine mission versus the natural mission. Type 1 people are especially endowed with a divine soul that has the ability to overcome a gift that God has given them that they experience the world to come in this world. What is the world to come? Let's think about it. What is the world to come that we talk about that as Jewish people we live in two worlds? The current world and the coming world. What is the coming world? The coming world is a time and experience where we bask in absolute holiness, in absolute spirituality where we have a love of God which is eternally effective on us and changes our character. The tzaddik experiences the world to come in this world. They are so evoked in a love of God that they have zero pleasure of this world. They deep, not only zero pleasure of this world, but in the words of the first Chabad Rebbe, they detest materialism. They're so engrossed in spirituality and their love for God that anything that is not but that love of God doesn't exist for all, that matter, for all they care. Yes, they need to eat and drink, of course, but even their eating and drinking and their mundane affairs are all about a selfless connection to God. That's their behavior, and even more so, their thought, speech, and action. Their emotions over here are even godly. However, the rest of us, the only, we only get to that stage in the afterlife. We only get to that stage where our, we don't have the physical temptations anymore because we don't have a physical body. Our spiritual glass healing is struggling, the internal struggle. So if you look in figure 2 type 2, just to summarize it, type A or type 1 is the tzaddik, we have it over here. He's perfect, he's flawless, but they're a rare breed, and it's a special gift from God. Type B, or type 2, is called a Bainini, struggler, internally flawed, but a lot of the overwhelming majority of us, at least I can speak for myself, right, are struggling. But interestingly enough, what was the name of the book that the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe wrote, the magnum opus, the Bible of Chabad philosophy, besides being called the Tanya. Last week we saw the name was called Sefer Shalbainini. He calls it a compilation of talks, but the other title is The Book of the Strugglers. The Tanya doesn't address the Tzaddik. That is a whole different book for it. If you have no struggles in this world, you can read this book. This book that the Alter Rebbe wrote is for the strugglers. It's for people like me and you. And this is what the Alter Rebbe tells us in this book. We are strugglers. We are eternally strugglers. But in order to understand the two types, the two soul types, we have to, and taking those two soul types and living a contented life filled with positive emotions and avoiding the shame and frustration that we're talking about, Let's take a step back. What's the primary cause of frustration? And if you look in exercise 
it's very simple to fill out. Realistically, <laughs> to which degree of the following scenarios likely frustrate you? One very frustrated, two somewhat frustrated, three not frustrated at all. And we'll go through it quickly like this. Everybody can try to respond. This is no difficult uh, exercise. Transportation. Your car breaks down and you need to get around via Uber. One through three. Anybody? Two. One. Okay, there you go. Well, you can't afford your car of choice. You can't afford your luxury car of choice. You can't afford a private jet. Okay, three, right? That would be three. You, have, you haven't yet sprouted wings. Anybody frustrated about that? Okay. Mer huh? You're frustrated on the wings? It would be nice. It would be nice, okay. Let's try housing here. You're homeless. I'm very frustrated. One, you can't afford an apartment or a home that meets your needs. You can't afford to buy only to rent. You can't afford to buy a luxurious home you wish. You can't afford to purchase Buckingham Palace. Anybody bothered by that? <laughs> Not frustrated. Okay. Leisure. You're an avid amateur golfer. Your local golf club shut down. There's nowhere local for you to play. Anybody tr troubled with that? Okay. No. The only local golf course is not as nice as you like. You can't beat your buddies in golf. You can't shoot five at a par. You didn't win the PGA tournament. Anybody bother with that? Okay. Look at your answers. Can you come to some type of conclusion why some things frustrate you more than others? Those the things that are necessary. Very good. Those things that are necessary are frustrating. Okay, nor necessary. Basically, the things you have an expectation for are the things you get frustrated about. Mm -hmm. Nobody here is frustrated that they don't own the Buckingham Palace. It's 83,000 square feet, made servants and everything else. It doesn't bother you. Why? Because you never thought of owning it. You don't want to deal with it, right? Too much, too much maintenance. <laughs> too many rooms, right? I know, me. Who can afford Right, who can afford it? Who wants to deal with it, right? <clears throat> Nobody's also bothered by the fact that they don't have wings, right? Yes, it would be nice if you can fly from here to there, but it's not an expectation. Take another simple example. You need to go from point A to point B. It takes about an hour to get there. If it takes an hour, are you frustrated? Not at all. But you need to get to point A to point B, and it usually takes 15 minutes, and today it took an hour. Are you oh, frustrated? Yeah. Why? It's the same hour! Because over here I expect to be there in 15 minutes. That's right. Over there I expect to be there an hour. Yeah. So automatically my frustration changed. Yeah. Even though I can travel an hour, but because I expected to be there sooner, therefore I am upset. Why do people get agitated in traffic? Even though traffic is an everyday occurrence, is because I thought I beat it, I thought I'll get it before it, I didn't think there was so much traffic, and all the different excuses of why their expectations have not been met. So why are we frustrated is a result of our expectations. That's why in the past, how long ago did air conditions come about? Right? I remember before it was air conditioned, but that's so I'm not that old. Okay? <laughs> right? What year was a common practice that every home had an air conditioner? Why were schools shut for three months in the summer? Because there were no air conditioning. Right? It was too hot. But it was still hot. I remember, I think when I was in sixth grade, we collected money to put an air conditioner in our class or something like that. That was the first air conditioner we had. That's not so long ago. But people went through the summer, people lived life, everybody was fine. All of a sudden today it goes 76 and a half and you don't, or it'll take even Wi-Fi, right? Or dial-up. 
How long ago was it that every computer you had to wait for until you finally got connected and it took six hours for something to download? All of a sudden today, the Wi-Fi is not working within six seconds and the file didn't go through. Where is it? How come I didn't get the instant message or anywhere? All of a sudden, our expectations change. We become more frustrated. So, And there's many different scenarios I'm sure you can figure it out. But the bottom line is, the, it, what creates our frustration is built on, on our expectations. There's a famous biblical commentator, his name was the Ibn Ezra, explains an interesting principle to one of the Ten Commandments. The last of the Ten Commandments is don't be jealous. And he explains it as follows. Text number four, page 53. An interesting insight. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife's servant or whatever that belongs to your neighbor. Many people wonder about this commandment. How is a man not to covet in his heart which is beautiful and to which he finds desirable? Very simple question. You drive down the block, you see this beautiful home. My emotion instinct tells me it's a beautiful home. Well, whatever else. The same thing with a woman or whatever it may be. If seemingly it's an emotion, how can God command you, so to speak, not to govern if it's a normal instinct? And he says as follows. I will give you a parable. If a common villager of a, sa- of a sane in mind sees the king's daughter, he will not covet her, although she is beautiful, because he knows that this is impossible. The villager will not think like a lunatic who desires to have wings to fly in the sky. The villager says to himself, me marrying that woman is like me having things. Doesn't make sense. He doesn't covet that woman because since it's impossible for that to happen. The same thing is also the verse tells us, part of the commandments. That we need to understand that the wife of a neighbor, whom God has forbidden to us, is more removed for us from us than it is a princess of the villager. If we have this frame of mind, we will be happy with our lot. And we'll enter our mind to covet and desire something that is not ours. Question. Yes. Just because you say something is beautiful doesn't necessarily okay. mean you want it. Okay, true. But in most cases, the reason why I'm expressing... Now, I can say the grass is beautiful, the trees, the forest are beautiful. But in, we're not talking about in that scenario. In most cases, when a person looks with lust at another woman, or if a person looks at somebody else's property... And this is a common. Usually if I wish I could have that, if I would only have the money, I would buy that, whatever it is. What the Torah is telling us, and this is an interesting thing, most uh, unhappiness comes from, especially in relationships and in financial matters, when people are lacking a certain amount of money, is because why can't I be like the Joneses? That family down the block has it. Or this person has it, if this person's like that. And all of a sudden you feel, hey, if they can have it, why can't I? But if we take this concept, what the Ebenezer says, just the, that if we have the frame of mind, that doesn't relate to me. That Having what that person has, like me having wings. So then I'm happy with what I have. Because the same way I don't want the wings of the bird, I'm happy with what I have because that doesn't even relate to me. If I get it, then I win the lotto, and then I buy the house, or whatever it may be, or, okay, I'll, then I'll be happy too. But I'm happy as well with what I have, because I'm not looking for somebody else to give me the happiness, because the happiness is within. But let's keep that in mind for a second time. Yes? 
don't know if it's easy or not, but let's say somebody has a beautiful house, much better than yours. Is it possible to take a step back and say, look what I have compared with someone else doesn't have? So that's already a remedy to be able to not to look there. <coughs> what the Ibn Ezra is going a step before that is that I don't even look at the house as something as deficient in me because that doesn't even apply. It's like I look in somebody's house in Montana. I couldn't care less how big his house is in Montana because I'm not planning to live there. I don't want to live there. Take your 40 acres that you own in Montana and keep it and go. Have a nice day with it. I, I'm not jealous of it. Why? Because it doesn't apply to me. So the same thing is also down the block. The neighbor that has a big mansion doesn't apply to me. But then the neighbor next to you might have it done. Yeah, that's also true. Okay. <laughs> that you definitely... But taking on this principle, the Alter Rebbe explains... But let's take this principle. The Alter Rebbe explains the frustration that somebody can have from their internal struggles as a result of unrealistic expectations. Most of the times that we are despondent and we are saddened and we are negative about ourselves and saying, why am I not this or why? is because we have a certain expectation within ourselves of who we ought to be and we are not that. And because of that, we, are, we have shame, and we have all, and we get frustrated and upset and lock ourselves up because of it. And what happens is that a person can think, on the contrary, that's a very good thing. Seemingly, if I am unhappy because of who I am, that's great. Maybe I'll become better because of it. And the Altadeva comes along and says just the opposite. If you are unhappy because of you feel that you are not living up to who you are, you know where that comes from? Egotism. Because you really believe that you're Mr. Great. It so happens to be that I'm not living up to Mr. Great, so therefore I'm all sad. So comes the author and tells you, you know what, you're not Mr. Great. You're a struggler. We all struggle. And therefore, you should know that these thoughts are not coming from a holy place. Let's see it in text number 5, in the words of the Alter Rebbe. To the contrary, page 55. Despondency over your spiritual struggle stems from an inflated self-assessment, from not recognizing your place. The delusion leads you to feel badly that you are not on the level of the perfect person who is certainly not bothered by such foolish thoughts. Therefore, he says, know your place. You are very far from the level of a perfect person and perfection ought not to be your goal. Rather, you should aspire to be a Bainini and never for a moment to fail in thought, speech, and action. And this, after all, is the lot of the Bainini and their task in life to struggle against and subdue their negative emotion, impulses. Tanya asks us to internalize and say, what is your expectations? What causes frustration? It's unreasonable expectations. Thinking that you have to be the Buckingham Palace, PGA Golf, whatever it is, and so on. But, if you don't have expectations, guess what? You don't have frustration. So practically speaking, what the Tanya is telling us is that type 1 souls are different than type 2. And type 1 souls are never going to be ty- type 2 souls. The banity, the struggler, is never going to be perfect. And you aren't perfect. So if you're upset and you're despondent because you're not perfect, guess what? Get over it. 
Not only get over it. Your despondency <laughs> is coming from a negative place. It's coming from your ego. And therefore your despondency is not accurate, is not purposeful. And it's hurting you. And therefore your frustration, the Alter Rebbe says, is self-created. And when it's self- if, Why? Because as we said, we were born to struggle. And we are a struggle. And we have to come to terms with the fact and understand our reality. That when we realize our reality, that we are by definition a struggler, we will not have unrealistic expectations of ourselves. And we will realize the challenge continues to be there. Why? Oops, I'm sorry. Because that is our job. That is who we are. And that's what we are meant to be. Question. Yes. Um, if, if we don't have a higher expectation for ourselves, then we cannot improve ourselves either, though. Okay, good question. So let me just reiterate that question because I think it's a very valid point. That means if I all of a sudden, if, let me paraphrase the words, if I say, okay, this is who I am, I'm not going to, if I go back to this slide, let's see if I can go back. If I have no expectations, then no frustrations like saying, okay, if I don't want to make money, then I won't get upset that I didn't make money because I have no interest in making money. Shouldn't I be ambitious and want to? But the time... Ta- but the Tanya is telling us it's something different. You have to have an expectation to who you are, not to who you aren't. Meaning, as a struggler, my expectation is to govern my divine soul, that my divine soul should govern my natural soul. That's my expectation. Beyond that, that's not who you are. So let's take it in a simpler term. If you're a nurse, you should be the best nurse you are, not be a doctor. If you're a lawyer, you want to be the best lawyer you are, not the rabbi. Don't be upset, how come I'm not like the rabbi? Don't be upset, how come I'm not like the doctor? Because you're not a doctor. Same ideas also. We are strugglers. Are you perfect? Guess what? Newsflash. You're not. God didn't create you perfect. In fact, as we're soon going to get to in a moment, this is your perfection, as we'll soon see in a moment. I don't want to jump the gun, but we'll get it. Yes. But I know nurses who have become doctors. I know lawyers who have actually become rabbis. Okay, that is because within the physical realm, we do have graduate places that we could become a different identity. The difference is that when it comes to our soul, God gave us a soul. That soul that God gave us in our mission oriented in our life is to be a struggler. So if you go from one to another, you're always meant to. It you're matter. always going to be, yes. That means you're always, that's in the physical, I'm using that as an example, so to speak, within the realm. But when we look at it from a soul perspective, and it is our mission in life and to have the positive attitude, the positive emotion is going to be created to realize what your divine soul's mission is, and that is to be a struggle. But my question to you is, does that resolve any of your issues? Does the frustration that you have because of your inner struggles get better because I said that's the struggle? Tough luck. No. I didn't think it would. So let's go a step further. So while all this is true, that we are born to struggle, and that's who we are, it's still difficult to accept, as I'm sure many of you understand. And the reason is because it feels useless. Why should I struggle? So you're saying, if I have no expectation, that's not fear. But on the other hand, I'll say, take the other side. If there's no expectation, why should I even start? 
Like there's a very famous story about this fellow who was a prisoner in the Siberian labor camp. And for 10 years, he would have to go on a treadmill. And they told him that on the other side of the wall, there's, this is tied to a millstone, that he is grinding the wheat for the entire camp, labor camp. And that's what this peddling is doing. And finally, after 10 years of peddling every single day, they break down the wall and they show him there's really nothing there and he faints. And they wake him up and say, what are you fainting? You're going out of prison. So he says, yeah, but for 10 years I thought I was doing something. I worked hard, I sweated and everything else, but at least there was a reason. Now I see it was a purpose. The same idea is that we can ask ourselves, if it's always a struggle, and we're type two souls, then what's our life all about? Is that, is that a true story? or a, a It's a metaphor, but it could have been true. I always tell you, all my stories are true, just some of them didn't happen yet. <laughs> Which one was that? That was never going to uh-huh. happen. Which one was that? The story? communists are going. Uh, <laughs> you don't know back. what they have there. They ain't coming back. <laughs> I have news to tell you. Okay. So, but the bottom line is, what we see from over here is that as type two souls, this seems like this is what our life's all about. So are we supposed to reduce our expectation and come to terms with the fact and say, okay, that's the way it is. And say, okay, I'll never be perfect. This is who I am. Tough luck. We'll just got to live with the reality. And we're just going to be forever spitting our will once again and again and again and again and again. But you can be as perfect as you can be in that category. But is the concept of life that I just have to keep on spinning my will based on what we're talking about? So let's find out. So the Tanya has to say something. Text number six. Do not feel distressed or exceedingly troubled, even if you are engaged in conflict all your life. For perhaps this is the reason why you were created, and this is your calling, to constantly subdue the false feelings and that emanate from the unholiness. And he says as follows. Listen closely to this. There are two kinds of enjoyment for God. One is from the complete annihilation of unholiness. This is accomplished by perfect people who transform their internal bitterness to sweetness, darkness to light. The second is a form of subduing of holiness, while it is at the apex of its strength through the effort of the strugglers. This is alluded to in the verse, Make me delicacies as I enjoy. Although this verse in its simple sense describes Isaac's instructions to Esau, the Zohar explains that this conversation reflects a deeper reality. These are words spoken by the Divine Presence to her children, the community of Israel. The word delicacies in plural form indicates, aforementioned, two types of enjoyment. In physical food, there are two varieties of delicacies, pleasant and sweet food and savory, or tart food that have been well-seasoned and prepared, so they have become delicacies that refresh our soul. So here's the analog. We matter. Everything we do in this world makes a difference. And there are different types of things that we do in this world because God has a variety of palates or different God likes or craves two different types of delicacies in the words of the Torah. And there are two types of delicacies. One that is sweet, chocolate, apple pie, dessert, naturally sweet stuff. The naturally sweet stuff come from the perfect person, type one individuals. Type 1 individuals get the perfect stuff, the sweet stuff. They take the unholy and transform it into something holy. No struggle. It's sweet. It's beautiful. It tastes great. 
But then you come to spicy stuff. The spicy stuff. God also likes a roast beef sandwich with chili, sriracha, hot sauce, lots of pepper. What is it? What's the secret behind savory foods? Spices, salt, pepper, garlic. Take salt on its own, pepper on its own, chili on its own. When your child says something wrong, you put that on their lips or tongues to make sure that they know that it's something wrong. You ever try dousing a whole chili? You gotta be crazy. Salt, you gotta be careful in your intake. But on the other hand, when you take a little bit of those stuff and you season your food with it, ah, delicious. Missing some salt, you can't eat the food. Eat the salt on its own, ugh, I can't eat it. Our character flaws are salt and pepper, which we spice our work and our service to God. The flaws on its own are bitter, repulsive, disgusting. But when they flavor our divine service, when they come together in serving God, all of a sudden, it's absolutely divine. It's delicious. It all of a sudden becomes delicious. This is exactly what the Torah tells us, the two type of delicacies. Take, for example, another one. Imagine you have two children. One child is gifted, is blessed, with a great, quick mind, catches things, one, two, three, aces all his tests, gets a hundred on everything, and the other child is a schlepper, barely gets up in the morning, doesn't listen in class. If he gets a fifty, he's great. And one day the second child comes home and got a 90 on it. Got a 70, let's say, on this test. Not a 90, got a 70. You jump for joy. You're excited. It's amazing. The other child gets a 70. You say, oi, where were you sleeping in class? (laughs) What happened? What's the difference? One's a struggler and one's the perfect child. And even though the struggler only got a 70, That was great for that child. That's beautiful. That enlightened you. They both give you nachas. One nachas is in the 70, and one nachas is the 100. They both give you aggravation. The other one doesn't give you any aggravation. And that one could give you aggravation if it gets to 50. Hasidism uses an example of a parrot to illustrate this idea. Look at this in text number 7. You wonder why a parrot. Here you go. Page 58. The hearts of kings are unfathomable. This possesses a difficulty which one wishes to capture a king's attention with an impressive gift in order to request something from him. After all, even valuable gifts are no consequence to the king. However, when we bring the king something surprisingly original, such as a talking bird, this is precisely the kind of gift that impresses the king. Granted, a bird's speech is infinitely inferior than human speech, for a person speaks with intelligence and wisdom, whereas a talking bird merely repeats the sound of words that's been trained with true comprehension, without true comprehension. And even then, its enunciation is inferior to that of the human. Nevertheless, because it is a delightfully original phenomenon, it impresses the king favorably. A similar dynamic plays out before the king of the universe, whereby... God's ultimate purpose for the creation involves souls in the material world, not angels. It is true that angels have a love and awe of God and profound understanding of divine, whereas the service performed by souls is one they cannot compare to angel service. 
Unlike the angels, our service requires tremendous effort and exertion. And after all the effort, our work still cannot be compared to the angels. Nevertheless, the angel service offers nothing surprising, for they do not inhabit a world of unholiness. By contrast, the service performed by souls down here emerges from a background of unholiness. And even only after overcoming an evil inclination that entices and tempts the person, God views such a first service delightful novelty. What is the, 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 the example? Take a parrot. What's a parrot? It mimics a few words somebody else says. But everybody goes, wow, unbelievable. Because it's something unique. It's something you wouldn't expect. The same idea is also when we pray. Angels pray. But they're automatic conduits to God. There's nothing different. It's what God's used to. All of a sudden, a person comes along and he prays. And this person, in order for him to pray, he has to take off time of work. He has to wake up in the morning. He has to beat the evil inclination, smash the alarm clock. He has to be able to subdue all the different temptations and all the different distractions of the world and pray. God says, wow, that's amazing. This is what I appreciate. That you don't get by angels. The struggle that the individual has to be able to give God with our flaws and imperfections. It is our flaws and imperfections that bring us to that state. That's what makes us the unique. That's what makes us different. If we would just be this perfect individual, it's another angel who even notices it. But over here, it's because we have those flaws and imperfections, like the parrot, because we don't speak clearly, and we're not used to usually speaking these words, and we do, all of a sudden, there's a special chamber on high where it goes to. But there's even another reason that our struggles, we shouldn't be dismayed because of our struggles. Text number eight. The lot of strugglers and their task in life is to subdue the negative impulses. And the thoughts that these impulses spawn to completely divert their minds from such thoughts and utterly reject them, as has been explained earlier. Every time a struggler expels a negative thought from the mind, listen to these words, the force of unholiness below is suppressed because a stimulus from below causes a stimulus from above. The cosmic forces of holiness are also suppressed. The Zohar marvels at the tremendous pleasures of God that derives from the suppression of holiness below. This causes God's glory to rise above all, an unparalleled descent, a feat not accomplished through any other prize. praise. The Tanya over here tells us a Kabbalistic phrase that the human being is a microcosm of the cosmos. Everything that we do has an automatic effect in the worlds above us. And when we behave a certain way, this triggers an action in the world above us. So where we have in the macro, in the world at large, there is something called klipa, translated as husk, literally means shell, husk, where it's the source of everything unholy. And when we suppress our natural soul, our evil inclination, our husk within ourselves, and we shine and we struggle and we overcome our struggle, we have now suppressed the unholiness the way it is above as well. But the Zohar says even more so. The Zohar, the Bible, Kabbalistic philosophy explains 
that automatically when we suppress our personal husk, our personal klipa, a cosmic light that has never been shown in the world before automatically shines in the world only because of our suppression of our natural self. A divine energy comes into the world which was not there before because the struggle is not only a suppression that happens within us, is a struggle that also happens above. And that suppression suppresses the evil or unholiness above and therefore shines a great light into the world. So the next time you feel shame, frustration because of an inappropriate thought or feeling, contemplate for a moment that your petty struggle that you are having right now has a mind-boggling effect. That when you say, I wake up in the morning and I don't want to go to show, but then you overcome it, you have now brought in cosmic difference into the world. You have suppressed your implication of you just dismissing a negative thought. You're automatically unleashing a divine light into the world, a divine energy throughout the cosmos. So it's not just your struggle. It's not just your struggle, but it's the entire universe struggle. And every single one of us, as we struggled, every single part of it, every single time we overcome that struggle, we continue to release these divine energies. With this in mind, this helps us now understand a very perplexing passage of the Talmud. And the Talmud says as follows, and I'm sure you're familiar with the story, and the Talmud says as follows. Text number 9a. When Moses ascended on high, text number, page 61, to receive the Torah, the ministering angel spoke before God, master of the universe. What business does a mortal being have among us? He has come to receive the Torah, God answered. The angel said to God, the hidden treasure that has been with, hidden with you, you wish to give to flesh and blood? What is a man that you will, should consider it? O God, O Master, how exalted is your name throughout the earth. Your glory should remain upon heavens. The angel's argument to God was, don't give the Torah to human beings. They'll just mess it up. Leave it up here. Answer them, said God, said to Moses. Now imagine. Moses is standing on high Mount Sinai, hasn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights, is there to get the Torah and bring it down from heaven. All of a sudden, the angels say, Ha, 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 what are you taking? What are you, human beings, what are you going to do with the Torah? You know what the Torah is? How are you going to use the Torah? Are you going to ruin the Torah? What are you going to do with it? God's gift, and you're giving it to mortals. And the angels have a right. They say, keep it. We should have it. Leave it up here in heaven. But God says, no. Well, they have a good point. God tells Moses, do you have an answer? What would Moses answer? What did Moshe respond? Text number 9b. Moses said, Master of the universe, what is written in the Torah that you wish to give me? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Turning to the angels, Moses said, Is there jealousy among you? Is there an evil inclination among you? And the angels immediately conceded. Now look at the answer that Moshe gave. The angels are arguing that the human beings are unworthy of receiving the Torah. Why? Because they are mortals with challenges of the evil inclination. What is Moses' answer? You know why we should get it? Because we have an evil inclination. Isn't he feeding into their, into their 
rationale of why we shouldn't get it. On the contrary, Moshe is saying, yeah, we have an evil inclination. So that's exactly what the angels are saying. Keep it on high, because you guys are a bunch of corrupt individuals. You got challenges. We can just study Torah without issues. But what was Moshe answering? Over here is the perspective and the difference between what Moshe viewed as the evil inclination and what the angels viewed the evil inclination. The angels viewed the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, as a character flaw, as an unhealthy impulse, a liability. You're not going to be able to study the Torah properly. But Moshe said just the contrary. The greatest gift that God has given us is the evil inclination. Why? Because God derives pleasure from service precisely because we have a Yetzirah. Because we have impulses. Because we have obstacles. Because we have challenges. That's why God loves us. Because he sees we're not an automatic, robotic way of just studying. I've got a challenge. I overcome it. My evil inclination tells me, don't follow. Don't look at it. The angels muted a liability. But Moses says, that's the greatest gift. Because we can bring a cosmic, divine energy into this world, which you angels cannot. That's why the Torah belongs to us. So to our question, if struggles, going back to what we just said before, if struggles are the purpose, is that then am I aimlessly just turning a wheel? Absolutely not. Every single struggle, we are providing God with enjoyment and bringing divine energy into this world. Every single time we have a challenge, we're born to struggle, yes. But every struggle is bringing a divine energy into the world, which has never been here before. We are having a tremendous cosmic impact. Type two type of people, the strugglers, need to redefine our goal. Their perpetual struggle against the natural soul is the goal. The goal is not like we started off with the class and one of us suggested that maybe the struggles is because it gets us to a better place. Absolutely not. The struggle is the better place. The struggle is the place that we're at. The struggle is the way we subdue our natural soul. The struggle is the capability that gives us the ability to bring a divine light into this world. The struggler is a perfect individual because only the struggler can bring that divine light and therefore is no less valuable than type 1 people. Type 1 people have their job. Perfect. But type 2, the struggler, is exactly what we are supposed to be. The struggle is not an impediment to our goal in our way of serving God. It is our way we serve God. This is the way we serve God. So to our question, shouldn't our expectations be higher? Absolutely not. Because that's not who you are. Your job is to struggle, meaning your service to God is to subdue your natural soul all the time, work on it. Times fail, times we win. But every time we win, that is our job. So if we feel that our purpose in life, and this is where the frustration comes. Where does the frustration come from? Because if we feel that our purpose in life is only to do the right thing, if we feel that our purpose in life is only to be perfect, if we feel that our purpose in life is only to be the final product, the goody good, 
That's our mistake. That's not our purpose. That's where our frustration comes from. Our purpose is to be the struggler. Doing mitzvahs with my character flaws, with my challenges, with my heavy heart waking up in the morning, with saying that I don't want to do it, but I still do it. That's who I am. It's like saying, I want to buy my wife a gift, but I'm too lazy. The store closed already, so I never got to the place on time. And therefore, I'm just, you know, I'm just a hassle. I'm just a pain in the neck. But the truth is that the struggle is what God wants. That's the gift. The struggle and the product is what God wants from us. But which one is the greater gift? Who's to say? That's not our decision. Maybe God wants the struggle more than the actual gift. Because as the words of the Zohar, every single time we hold back that evil inclination, a divine light comes, even greater than the light, than if I would have transformed it. We now understand that the Jewish perspective is way deeper than what we started off with saying what are struggles for. Most people value or most people see value in struggles and part of the success that the struggle will get them to. Most people look at struggles. In fact, if you look at the Webster's Dictionary, defines a process, meaning a natural phenomenon marked by a gradual change that leads us towards a practical result. So people that are starting a business will say, I gotta lose money in order to make money. I gotta, you know, if there's no money, there's no what are they called? No pay, no gain, or whatever it may be, and how we translate different struggles. That's because we don't view the struggle as a means, as an end. We look at it as a means to an end. We don't look at the struggle as a that's the way they look at the struggle as and therefore it's frustrating. Why so long of the pain? I want to get to the game. But Judaism says no. The struggle in itself, regardless if it brings you to growth or not, regardless if it gets you to a desirable situation or not, that in itself is the goal. Because every time you overcome the struggle, whether it gets you to a desirable goal or not, you've now done something great. And that's who you are, and that is your job. So what we see over here is all negative emotions come from a life that's aligned with the natural soul. Our natural soul tells us that I'm struggling, I'm frustrated, too much pain here, let me get out of this situation. But all of a sudden, if we align ourselves and we move away from the negative emotion, to move away from it, we have to now align ourselves with the divine soul and the agenda of the divine soul. And what does the divine soul say? There's no small task. There's no small area in life which is not our tackle. And we see clearly that if we rid ourselves from this frustration of thinking that we are somebody who we are not, from this frustration of looking at the struggle when we implement it in our life, then the natural soul will seek the gratification, have that gratification, and realize that the hardship itself, the struggle itself, is something to be desired. So if we look at the difference between looking at it from the natural soul to the divine soul, the natural soul thinks that unless I'm perfect, I'm going to be aggravated. Unless I'm perfect, I'm going to be frustrated. I'm struggling. It's a pain in the neck. I'm not perfect. I'm not that person who I assume myself to be. The godly soul is on the contrary. I want the mission. The actual battle is what makes me strong, is what gives me energy, what gives me the oomph to be able to do it. 
The divine soul says, I only want to fulfill what God wants me to do. I want to bring a divine light into this world. And if the struggle is the mission, that's wonderful. Why would it be a source of frustration? I only get frustrated if I think that I'm just peddling something that gets me nowhere. I only get frustrated in a struggle if I feel that I want to be out of it. But if I know that this is who I am and that the struggle is what I am meant to be doing, then I don't get frustrated. On the contrary, if I'm frustrated that I want to be out of the struggle, it's like frustrated that you want to have wings because that's not who you are. Let's see in text number 10. Because what happens to shame and inadequacy then? What do I say then? But if I'm struggling, that's, I feel shameful, I'm inadequate, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. And here's what the Talmud, the, the, the measure says. Do not say, I cannot tolerate wearing a garment made of shatness. Text 10. A biblical forbidden mixture of wool and linen. I find the meat of a swine repulsive. I have no desire for illicit sexual relations. Instead say, I can and would. But what should I do? However, my Father in Heaven had instructed me not to. The Medrash tells us very clearly here. Internal flaws and unhealthy desires are not a reason to be ashamed. A person say, oh, how can I think of such things? How can I even, how can that even come to my mind? Or the opposite, the Medrash says. Yes, it's natural for you to think that way. We're humans. God gave us an evil inclination. Greatness lies in saying, yes, we do struggle, though I may have that temptation, but I don't act on it. I do the right thing anyway. The natural soul causes me the shame and the feeling and inadequacy. The natural soul will tell me, you're perfect, how dare you even enter your mind? You're out of your mind, how can you think of such things? The divine soul says, no. You're a struggler. And part of struggling means that these thoughts come into your mind, but I get rid of them. And every single time I get rid of them, that divine energy comes. So if we look at the benefits in the model of following our divine soul, to recap, we have the area here is shame, feeling, and inadequacy and frustration that results from our internal struggles. When I follow my divine soul, I negated that by the understanding that character flaws are a gift and that struggles are a purpose in life. Always remember, and back to what you said, God doesn't create anything that's imperfect, and that includes you. Think about it. To say that you're imperfect, or to feel certainly shame that you're imperfect, is like saying that God is imperfect too. Because then he didn't know how to create us. He made a broken vessel. Our imperfections are a gift that God has given us that we can challenge ourselves to be able to say, yes, I'm imperfect, but still I'm able to bring the divine energy into this world by having that struggle and overcoming it. So you can see in text, exercise 2.2, what year of your life can you adapt the divine soul perspective, thereby reducing feelings of shame, inadequacy, and frustration? You can write that down on your own. What we see over here is that the Alter Rebbe concludes the following. And he says, text number 11. When we subdue unholiness below, we cause a great revelation of God's glory and holiness in the higher worlds. 
From this holiness issues a sublime holiness unto us below to assist and empower us in our service of God. This is what the sages had in mind. When we sanctify ourselves a little below, we are sanctified much more from above. In truth, we are not holy, nor are we removed from that holiness that is full strength in our hearts. Yet, when we subdue our holiness and act in a holy manner, ultimately we will be truly holy and separated from all unholiness. This is due to the holiness we receive from above, which helps us gradually expel only holiness from our heart. And here is the third step, which is talking about expectations and going higher. There's another benefit from inner struggles. Because what happens, let's go back to the example of the child that only got 50s and finally got a 70. What happens when you get a 70 finally? What does then the parent say? Wow, you can get a 70. Let's work on 80 now. Same ideas with God. God says, you know what? I know you're a struggler. But today, your struggle was in a thought, in a speech, or in an action. Tomorrow, we're going to up the ante. We're going to get you past even more difficult struggle. You're going to get even stronger and stronger because the more we intensify ourselves with our divine light, the stronger we become and the more we grow. And we will always struggle, just the struggle evolves. And it becomes a different type of struggle, a holier struggle, an easier but a more difficult one. So once we become successful in the struggles, the battleground changes, but it's still the same war, it's still the same idea. And the point is that we may become perfect in those areas and we'll become content to the natural soul. I say, okay, I got this. I get up in the morning. I don't have the problem of going to shul or doing a mitzvah or learning some Torah or whatever. Okay, that's not my struggle now. But then all of a sudden, I have a new area in life, which may be difficult for me, that I tackle then. And guess what? Because you saw you were able to tackle the other thing, you'll see you'll be able to tackle this. And then once you grow from step to step, so after all is said and done, we are able to continue and that is because we will never rid ourselves of the natural soul. As long as we live in our bodies, our materialistic life, there will still be a certain selfish element that will try to subdue us. And the greater we subdue, and the more we subdue, and the more control we have <coughs> and aligned we are with the divine soul, the better we get with controlling the struggle, so to speak, controlling the war, controlling the attitude of how it goes. So if we're struggling with anger, let's say, and I finally subdue and realize how to control my temperament. Okay, I got that aligned. Okay, now the next thing is I've got to go to the opposite side. Let's be kind. Let's be nice, whatever it may be. And all these types of struggles help us then, as we know, that when we start a little bit, all of a sudden this changes. And what happens? We have a character refinement. So automatically the struggle now does the benefits that we have of it. Number one... So there are three benefits from aligning ourselves with the divine soul concerning shame and frustration. When we realize that we have our struggles, and we know that our struggles come from God, we know that the struggle, number one, benefit is it brings God pleasure. Number two, because if remember, the pleasure is those spices that we gave. Every single one of those struggles is like the salt that adds. The flaws and imperfection in our soul makes our service to God even better. Causing divine revelation every time we struggle, we overcome the struggle, we bring down a divine energy into this world, it's creating a cosmic difference. And finally, number three, the struggler then becomes a recipient of holiness 
and makes our character much better. Which then, as we know, struggles are valuable in and of themselves because the fringe benefit, our character becomes better because of it. When you realize that you're able to withhold and you can see it within yourself, try it one day. When you're tempted to do something and you say, you know what, today I'm not going to do it. You will come at the end of the day and feel good about yourself that, look, it was challenging, it was tough, but I did it. It's like a marathon. I got through the miles. I was able to do it, whether it's a diet, whether it's a temptation, whether it's a going to shoot, whether it's a spiritual or physical thing, whatever it may be. The struggle that we finally are able to subdue that emotion, that the natural soul wants me to do something out of an absolute selfish reason. One of the greatest examples you will find if let's say you weren't in talking terms with somebody for a long time, and you had 110 excuses about it, and finally said, you know what, I'll make the plunge, I'm going to call that person. When you hang up the phone, and no matter what the response was on the other side, you feel great. Why? Because you've now done something. You subdued your natural temptation, and you've come to the divine soul. You've aligned yourself with the divine soul, which automatically you brought a great light and you have a character change because of it. One of the biggest issues that we have in this world, especially following the natural soul, is because we're selfish. And we feel entitled to everything and therefore we get frustrated why we don't have it. I saw today somebody put a meme. What's millennials' favorite question? How does everybody else afford to live what they're on? What they're made, uh, live, uh, how does everybody else afford to live with what they're making or something like that, right? Why? Because why should I work? Who's supporting? I have to get it anyway. So that's why there's a frustration. If I feel entitled to something, if I feel I should be able to get something and I'm not getting it, I get frustrated. So what does the Tanya say? That's not who you are. Realize one second. Why am I getting frustrated? Because I'm expecting something. Am I really supposed to be expecting that? Is that really what it comes to me? Not necessarily. And that is in physical and in spiritual, but even more so in spiritual. And with this, we can have more content within ourselves, not be embarrassed of who we are. Because that's who I am. Do I struggle? Of course I struggle. We all struggle. The question is, what do I do about that struggle? How do I react to that struggle? What does that struggle make me? A stronger person or a weaker person? A better person or a less than better person? So, next week, we'll be talking about our character flaws are not per se a reason to be upset, but what about those things that we do cause to slip up, and sometimes drastic mistakes that we do, and all of a sudden we have that guilt. Is guilt a good thing or not? Some used to say guilt is to the soul, or pain is to the body. Is it a true statement? Is it not a true statement? Next week we'll talk about dealing with guilt, what kind of guilt is healthy, and what kind of guilt is toxic. Here's just a summary of what we learned today. Lesson 2. Embracing Flaws. 1. Perfect people do exist. Endowed with lofty souls, such people are extremely rare. They are holy, selfless, flawless, and have vanquished their negative impulses and character flaws.
The majority of people, however, struggle their entire lives against their character flaws and unhealthy impulses. For most, inner perfection is unattainable. Two, it's typical to feel frustrated by our internal struggles. This frustration is a result of an unreasonable expectation of perfection. We need to come to terms with who we are and always will be and understand that struggling is our mission in life. 3. Common wisdom attributes value to struggle because it's part of a process that leads to a beneficial result. From the Jewish perspective, the struggle is the goal. 4. When we struggle against and suppress our internal unholy instincts, we create a cosmic impact. We trigger the suppression of the cosmic forces of unholiness, unleashing a tremendous amount of divine light. 5. God enjoys the sweet and pleasant service of the perfect person. But God enjoys as much, if not more, the savory, spicy service of the struggler. In fact, God derives exquisite nachas from the extraordinary work of the struggler. Our flaws are not impediments, they are gifts. They make us valuable and cosmically relevant. 6. This perspective also resolves feelings of shame and inadequacy, which result from seeing character flaws as liabilities instead of gifts. 7. Adopting this perspective requires divine soul-focused and mission-focused living and thinking. Lesson two. M. Okay, next week, rethinking regret, addressing unhealthy guilt. Any questions?